Resignation is, or some have dubbed it, the great reshuffling that's happened as a result of the pandemic. It is, as the Pew Research Center has noted in one of their articles, where the nation's quit rate in employment has reached a 20-year high. The Pew Research Center says, employees are citing that low pay, a lack of opportunities for advancement, and feeling disrespected at work are the top reasons why Americans quit their jobs last year. The survey also finds that those who quit and are now employed elsewhere are more likely than not to say their current job has better pay, more opportunities for advancement, and more work-life balance and flexibility. So they're changing jobs. A number of reports have come out recently as well to talk about how this great resignation has been impacting pastors in churches. The Washington Post recently reported, it was back in November of 2021, that a Barna survey of Protestant pastors published last month found that 38%, 38% of pastors said they had considered quitting full-time ministry in the past year. 38%. That's a large percentage of people. That was up 10% from January before it. Church statistician Tom Rayner posted this week on his blog a list of 10 reasons why pastors who quit ministry altogether were glad that they left full-time ministry altogether. Why did they, why were they happy? They were happy to get out of the ministry. Why? Here's, here's the 10 reasons. One, the pressure is gone. Pastors could feel a burden lifted when they left. Many of them said it took about a month before they could sense the pressure abating. Two, my family likes me now. Wow. Most of the pastors indicated that their family benefited greatly from this move. It was typical of former pastors to point out specifically that their spouses benefited the most. Three, marketplace ministry is more fruitful than the pastorate. Many pastors expressed amazement at how open co-workers were to ministry and to the gospel. Four, My family had its first uninterrupted vacation in four years. Five, I don't jump now when the phone rings. Many of those pastors especially flinched at late night or early morning calls. Those were typically someone calling the pastors to notify them of a tragedy involving church members. Number six, I don't dread looking at my emails or social media now. Such are the locations where many of the critics of the pastors resided. Seven, I actually am taking time to get closer to God. Sadly, many pastors were so busy being pastors that they were too exhausted to spend sufficient time in prayer and in the Bible. Eight, I have a hobby now. One pastor told us that he had forgotten the joy of reading books for pleasure until he quit vocational ministry. Nine, I needed a break from the weekly grind of sermon preparation. Most people simply cannot fathom that pastors spend as much as a thousand hours a year in sermon preparation. Ten, I get to come home at night. 
It's not uncommon for pastors to have four or five weeknight commitments a week. One former pastor shared with us that he and his wife have resumed date nights once a week. It had been three years since they went on a date. So there's a great resignation taking place across our country in the employment world. And there's a great resignation taking place among pastors when 38% are ready to leave the pastorate and you hear the reasons why, you have to to wonder what's, what's going on in our world? What's going on in our churches? How are we thinking about ministry? Now, I think there's a greater conversation to be had behind all these comments that these pastors are making, but it seems to be in line with what we're seeing across our country. More than likely, a pastor or even an elder's tenure with a flock is tied to that pastor or that elder's expectations that he has of the flock, and likely some of the frustrations that a pastor or an elder might face are tied to some of the expectations the flock has of the pastor. You have to wonder, are pastors actually enjoying the flock, and is the flock actually enjoying the ministry that the pastor provides? So we, we should drive ourselves then to ask what a faithful approach, a biblical approach to ministry might look like that would actually rejuvenate the soul of a shepherd and actually help the, the flock enjoy the ministry of the shepherd. And I think we're seeing those kinds of expectations played out in Paul's life in his relationship with this church in Thessalonica. It's actually quite profound. It's been very helpful for me in my own study and meditation throughout the week to ask my own heart, what expectations do I have of the church? What what kind of expectations does the church have, have of me and of our elders? Throughout our study, we've been looking back and forth at the description between Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians and the Thessalonians' response to his ministry. It's been this back and forth since chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5, how he preached to them. Chapter 1, verse 6 through 10, how they received it. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, how he preached to them and ministered to them, even expanded more. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, how they've responded to that ministry. And we're seeing it again. Last week, we looked at the passions of a faithful pastor. We looked at how he was serving them by sending Timothy. He's still yearning for their faithful growth. And this week we're going to see it again, this back and forth played again, how they're responding to that ministry. You're seeing the expectations of a faithful pastor. You're seeing the expectations of a faithful flock. You're actually seeing a pastor, a shepherd, enjoying the ministry and the flock enjoying the ministry in circumstances that are less than enjoyable. Meaning that true joy in ministry from flock or shepherd is not dependent on everything in the surrounding culture going the way we would like it to go. It has something more to do with what's going on in the affections of the heart. And how we're responding by faith and faithfulness to the ministry of the word. Last week in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we looked at the passions of a faithful pastor. The passions that Paul had for the flock in Thessalonica. Or we could say his expectations for them. What did he want? What was he expecting from this flock? 
Well, he was passionate to strengthen their faith, to disarm all the spiritual disturbances that come from the difficulty of suffering that they were having. And he wanted to encourage the flock to endure to the very end. In fact, I... I feel every time I read those first five verses of chapter three, uh, a great tension in these verses. This expectation are, are, is this flock rising to these expectations? Are they faithful? Are they enduring? Because that's where his joy seems to rely and be found. His concerns were all about their spiritual health. Very little about his own personal situation. What were their expectations of Paul? What was the flock's expectations of Paul? Did they actually share his spiritual quest for help and health? Had they grown weary of him and maybe they'd grown weary of the message that he was bringing and they first embraced? I mean, after all, the ministry of Paul that they embraced was actually bringing suffering to their life. It had been very easy for them to turn away from all of that and gone back to something that was more comfortable. But after extensive time of separation between Paul and his flock, because of increased opposition and unrelenting difficulty for believing in Christ, Paul wanted to know, did they still believe? That's what Paul cared about most. But do they share that same zeal for him and the ministry so inextricably connected to his reputation? That's the tension we found last week. This week, the tension is relieved. And we find that not only do they love him, but they long for his return to them because they continue to share similar passions as his for their faith. And these passions in this faithful flock have an even greater impact, not only on Paul's enduring love for them, but also in his own eagerness to get back to them. As I have said last week and on many occasions, I don't know of another place in the Bible that expresses the heart of a shepherd and a flock for the shepherd better than this book. This is on display here how much they loved their shepherd and how much he cared for them and what that looked like and what it felt like. What they desired from one another, what they expected from one another. It's hard to read this and think Paul would have been a part of the 38% of pastors who were ready to quit. It would have been difficult to read this and think, oh, this is a, a church that's ready to get rid of their shepherd because of all the challenges that they're facing. No, this is a... A shepherd and a church, despite the challenges, they love each other. And they love each other for very spiritual reasons. It's a wonderfully helpful description of the kinds of passions a faithful church has for shepherds and the impact that those passions have on those shepherds. Maybe if more shepherds served with these kinds of passions and more congregations had these affections for the shepherds, you would see greater longevity in ministry. The flock's passions for her leaders are clear here, as are the impact of those passions. So that's what I want to look at this morning. Two two aspects here. 
But we're going to look at three different passions, three different passions of a faithful flock. And as we look through those passions, then we're going to turn the table to see what are the impact of those passions on the shepherd. So three different passions that the flock has for the shepherd. And then Paul lists for us and he describes four different ways that passion they have for him impacts him. And we learn from that. If a church has these kinds of affections for the shepherds, look at the impact it will have on the life of the shepherd. You say, well, this is a very self-serving sermon, Pastor Brett. It's just next in the text, you know, it's how I like to do it. And we all need to hear it. We all need to hear this. And we need to enjoy it. Now, lest anyone sitting there saying, is this like precursor to the resignation sermon for Pastor Brett? Uh, not at all. Not, not, not at all. If I could, if I could say anything, I, I would say, I feel in my heart, I don't know if you think this, but I feel such a joy in shepherding this church. I love to be a part of this congregation. I love to be a part of your life. I love to see how your faith is growing. I love to see what's happening here. Uh, I can't imagine going anywhere else. I, I don't want to start over again. My wife has told me we're not starting over again anywhere. Uh, she doesn't either. And there's a, there's a great desire to shepherd this flock because we enjoy the sheep here together with the elders of our church, there's a, a great sense of satisfaction in shepherding this place. But we can all grow in these things. We can all grow deeper in these affections. So let's, let's look at them together. Let's first look at the passions of a faithful flock for her shepherds. Let's look first at what those passions of a faithful flock are for the shepherds. They're all found in verse 6. Verse 6 is all about the Thessalonians' response to Timothy's coming on Paul's behalf to see if their original response to the gospel is their current response to the gospel. As one commentator has noted on this, this verse, upon this verse turns the epistle. Meaning the whole reason he wrote this book is found here in this, in this verse. Are you still believing? And since you are, and since you have these, then I have more to say. And that's where he goes in chapters four and five. This is really the turning of the epistle. And notice how Paul describes their response in verse six. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, but now, like right this minute, that's how that phrase should read. Timothy has just arrived and right after he got here and told me about you, right this minute, I'm writing a response. Right now, he has come and he's told us about your affections for us. And that's why I'm writing this letter. And he's come to us from you and has brought us good news. Do you see that? He's brought us good news. Good news is one word in the, in the Greek New Testament. And it's a very important word and a word you should know well. It is the word euangelizo. It's the word that we get the word evangelism from. It's the word that means to preach the gospel. That's the word he uses here. He's come with good news. You say, well, does that mean Timothy came and he's evangelizing Paul? 
No, the word euangelizo can be used just in a normal sense to talk about bringing news that is good, not just gospel news, but good news. But here's the thing. Paul's going to use this word euangelizo about 20 times. This would be the only time that he uses it where he doesn't mean preach the gospel. And there's a lot of other words he could have used in the Greek New Testament to describe he brought us news that was good. Why does he choose the one that's connected to the term he normally means preach the gospel? Well, I think that's because he sees all of their response and Timothy has reported to him about their responses that their responses are all tied to the gospel. Their responses are all within the realm of the good news of the gospel. These are gospelly reports about them. These are good news in terms of their reflection that they still hold true to the gospel message. So what did these responses look like? Here we're going to see some of the details of the passions of a faithful flock. There are three of them. Notice first, these are passions that flow from gospel faith. They are passions that flow from gospel faith. Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith. That's gospel faith. Your faith. Why is this so significant? Well, it's so significant because this is what Paul cared so much about. Remember, Paul's passion surrounded their having maintaining, preserving, and persevering in true faith. Just as a reminder of this, chapter 1, verse 3 He knew about their work of faith. In chapter 1, verse 8, everywhere their faith toward God has gone forth. And actually chapters 2 and 3 detail that faith. Chapter 3, verse 2, Timothy was sent to strengthen and encourage their faith. Chapter 3, verse 5, Paul sent to find out about their faith. Chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy reports good news about their faith. Verse 7, we were comforted about your faith. Verse 10, we want to come and complete what is lacking in your faith. Everything Paul cared about was their faith. And what was the report? They have faith. They have faith. They have confidence in Christ. The same confidence they had in Christ when they received the gospel is guarding and guiding their life even now. They're still committed to Christ. They find more satisfaction in Jesus than they do in anything else in the world. They're persevering. How are they dealing with the loss that they're experiencing? Loss of employment. I'm sure some of them had lost their livelihood because of the gospel. Well, they have confidence that Christ will provide. That's faith. What about the relationships with friends and family who have likely disowned them and turned away from them because of their commitment to Christ? Well, they continue clinging to those people who will trust in Jesus. That's faith. That's what it looks like. How are they dealing with the loss that comes from people who have died because of persecution? Well, they keep looking to the future and the ultimate life that we find in Christ when the dead are raised and they look to hope. That's faith. They're continuing in faith. They're believing in each circumstance that is challenging their personal life. They're responding with a satisfaction in what Jesus provides. That's what it looks like to respond with a passion of gospel faith. Not just confidence, friends. You, you, you don't have to be a Christian to be confident in the midst of trials and circumstances. Non-Christians can be confident. You see it all the time. 
They can, they can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They can move along. That's not what this is talking about. Every challenge that comes across their life, they keep responding to it with Christ is more. Christ is better. I, I'm not letting go of Jesus. That's faith. That's faith. What a church. What a, what a church that is. There's a second passion you see in verse 6. It's a passion that flows from gospel love. Not only did Timothy report about the gospel kind of faith, but the gospel kind of love that they have for each other. Now likely, this love is an expression of their devotion to each other. It's not just their love for God, I'm sure that that was present, but I don't think that's what he's referring to specifically, because when he talks about love in the next chapter, in chapter 4, he's going to talk about love in terms of how they express gospel love for one another, so I think that's really what he has in mind here. In fact, that's what happens when you're a person of faith, isn't it? If you have real faith, you start loving other people. And you love them with a Christ-centered kind of love. A love that comes from the gospel. Like Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What really means something? But faith working through love. That's what really means something. Not circumcision, uncircumcision, not external religiosity, but faith that's actually working itself out in love. That's what really means something. So this means they're loving each other in the congregation. And there will be so many reasons for them to love each other in this congregation. With all the stress and the affliction and the pain that they're experiencing, how are they then coming around one another? They're loving one another. They're not distancing themselves from each other as the times get tough. And that would be tempting Do I really want to be close to that group? The closer you get, the more the affliction comes. They're not becoming disgruntled with each other due to the pressures of believing. That's easy to see. When times get tough, it's easy to start pointing the finger at someone else for why you're feeling the way you're feeling in the challenges. They're not doing that. They're opening up their arms and embracing one another. They're loving one another. They're they're overcoming the challenge or the temptation to become cold toward each other's needs when the needs seem to be so prevalent and unending. And probably those needs are inconvenient. Haven't you noticed that other people's needs are not always convenient for you? But they're loving despite that. They're meeting each other's needs. They're involved in relationships that reflect holiness. They're avoiding taking advantage of of each other. They're looking to encourage one another. That's why love is a sign of gospel life, isn't it? When you see a church that's serving and loving and caring about one another, and not just that practical needs are being met, but they're loving one another that you're growing in holiness They're meeting to pray, they're reading the Bible together, they're urging you on, they're encouraging you to persevere. That's love, and it flows from faith. They're believing in each circumstance that is challenging, they keep believing 
in their personal life and their believing in their congregational life and you see that through their love. There's a third passion they express. It's another gospel passion. It's a passion that flows from gospel friendship. From gospel friendship. You see it at the end of verse 6. Timothy's reported of your faith, your love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. This must have sent Paul through the proverbial spiritual ceiling, I think, when he read that. I mean, this is what he's looking for, isn't it? Remember all that tension in the first five verses? Are you believing? Are you, are you there? I can't stand it anymore. When I can't stand it anymore, I sent Timothy because I, I, I couldn't live with myself. And now he hears that report through the, through the roof. Yes. Yes. I mean, you can imagine what he felt like at that point. Ah, oh, they don't hate me. And they could have. His preaching was the cause of their affliction. Them following what he was doing, them being disciples of the Apostle Paul and following Christ caused them a lot of pain. It would have been natural for them to say, no more Paul. I don't want to hear about him anymore. The more we talk about him, the worse life gets. That's, that's not what he found. It's not what Timothy came back and reported. Now think about the details in this last passion. You see it, you always think kindly of us. It's, it's the word for remember. You remember us with good memories. Now, it's more than just you, you have good memories. It's more than that. This is actually about discipleship. I want you to think about this carefully. His relationship with this church was not fundamentally about him. His ministry to them was about Christ They shared a partnership together in ministry, a relationship, a fellowship, a friendship together in Christ. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 6, they became imitators of Paul. And we said when we covered that, that's a part of what discipleship is. You remember when Jesus told the disciples, come follow me. What did he mean by that? Well, in the first century... Everybody understood that. These professional philosophers and even some of the rabbis in the Jewish culture of the first century understood to follow a rabbi, to follow a philosopher is not just to go around and listen to them. It is to imitate them, to mimic them, to memorize the teaching that they're teaching and make it a part of your life, to see how they're living it out and then follow the way they're living. And Paul says, you became imitators of us. In chapter 2, verse 7, Paul reminded them, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly tenderly cares for her own children. We were like a mother to you. Verse 8, having so fond an affection to you, we were well pleased not only to give you the gospel, but our own soul. You remember this kind of close-knit ministry that they had? He's giving them gospel and his heart. Verse 9 in chapter 2, night and day we worked so that we would not be a burden to you, like an example. Verse 10 of chapter 2, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. 
This is a massive ministry he had, a very personal ministry he had. It was filled with gospel discipleship, and and discipleship is all about the mentor, teacher, the teacher, and the one being mentored. And they mimic one another. They imitate one another. When he says, you always have good memories, he means you're still remembering what I taught and following it. That's why he's so elated. It's not just, ah, they they don't hate me. That's not the idea. They're still following what I taught. They remember. And they're good remembrances. They're not rejecting the teaching. As one commentator noted of this phrase, a good translation would be, they maintain a recollection. It refers to maintaining and practicing a teacher's model or pattern by a disciple, a dynamic that is strongly present in this letter as well as in Hellenism and Judaism. A disciple continued to be guided by the exemplary life of his teacher in his absence by remembering him. Their remembering him means they're still following what he taught. But even more than just remembering, they are, look at the text again, they're longing to see us. You are longing to see us just as we also long to see you. The word longing, that's a very strong term. It's also translated in other places in the Bible as groaning. Groaning with desire. We're yearning even used to speak of jealous desires, very intense desires. You're longing to see us just as we are you. Deep affection. This is a gospel longing too, and you see it there. Why are they longing? How are they longing? They're longing in the same way He was longing to see them. How did he want to see them? What did he want for them? You remember the end of chapter two? Who is our hope? Who is our joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You are our glory and our joy. That's why I want to see you. You are my joy. To see you presented to the Lord in completion, finished, still believing. And they want to see him the same way he wants to see them. That's a gospel-driven kind of longing. Not just, it's not just raw friendship, secular friendship, normal friendship. It's a gospel kind of friendship. Several writers on this passage point that very idea out, that the phrases and emotions that Paul expresses here are indicative of the way the ancient people used to speak about friendship. One writer, Gordon Fee, not only on this passage, but in another commentary he writes on the book of Philippians, he spends about three pages detailing what ancient friendship used to look like. And he sums it up here, he says, on the personal side, this section here in Thessalonians is full of friendship motifs as understood by ancient standards. Thus, even though they are his disciples, as it were, he treats them in this letter altogether as his friends. 
That's essentially what discipleship is, isn't it? Discipleship is Christian friendship. It's what discipleship is. It's a gospel-driven friendship. Who are your friends? Who are your friends? And what level and to what degree does the gospel define that friendship? You say, well, I got lots of friends. I got friends at work. I got friends in my neighborhood. I got friends that I've had for years and years, and they're not Christians. Well, you can have levels of friendship with lots of people, right? You can have degrees of friendship with many people, and I hope that you do. I hope that you are a friendly person. And it kind of takes that at times to be friendly. I mean, it takes a real special kind of person that will be friends with someone who's not friendly. Hopefully you're friendly. So I've got friends who are just like me. Hmm, that'd be interesting to see, wouldn't it? Disgruntled. No. You can have lots of different friends. The deepest of your relationships are going to share what is most deeply concerning and impactful in your life. The deepest friendships are going to be those that share what you care most about. What do you care most about? What do you care most about? You're going to start connecting yourself more closely and more deeply with people who align themselves with what drives you most significantly. Is that the gospel? Is that the gospel? Is that where your friendships are? Because that's what discipleship is. When you're a friend with someone, it doesn't mean that you just, when you hang out together, you're just quoting Bible verses all the time. Or that everything is a systematic theology conversation. But I would say this, even when it's not a Bible conversation, the Bible flavors your conversation. It flavors your enjoyments. It flavors the way you relate to each other. What you pursue, what you don't pursue. How you pursue it. It flavors everything. Does the gospel do that in your life? That's what's so exciting to Paul. What they want to maintain with him is not just, we still want you to be our preacher. We want you, your close, personal, gospel, friendship, ministry with us. We long for you. We yearn for you. We have a passion to see you. We still have faith. We're loving each other. And we want more of you in our life. Ministry is not about professionalism. It's not. Pastors and elders are not professional therapists. We're not clinicians. We don't just have office hours in which we can relate. No, when we counsel, and we do, and we talk about life issues, and we do, we do that not as some professional on-the-clock charging hours and time, but in a personal way, as friends, as partners in the gospel ministry together. We're not professional coaches. It's not a coach-player relationship. I really do not like that terminology that's being used in ministry today. We're coaches. No, you're not. we're not coaches. Jesus did not tell his disciples, I'm your coach. You're the player. In fact, we're all players. 
No, it's friendship. It's friendship. It's fellowship. It's partnership. Now, it's true that no individual can have the deepest friendships with everyone, and no one shepherd can be deeply connected to everyone in the same degree. We all know that. Still, the relationship that every elder must have with the church is one of gospel friendship. We should be able to look at our shepherds and look at them and say, that is not just a brother in the Lord, that is a friend in the Lord. Think about what kind of congregational passion that is. That's the passion this church had for Paul and likely Silas and Timothy who ministered to them and they wanted to see them again in that gospel kind of relationship. Now that's the passion. That's the passion that Paul was experiencing from them. What's the impact of that passion from that congregation on his heart? That's really interesting to see. And that's where he goes in verses 7 to 10. That's second, the second thing we're going to look at this morning is the impact of these passions of a faithful flock toward her shepherds. What's the impact of a faithful flock's passions for her shepherds? So what you see in verse 6 is how the church felt about Paul, and then verse 7 to 10, how that touched him, how it impacted him. So what do a congregation's passions that flow from gospel faith, gospel love, and gospel friendship toward the leaders have on the leader? Here you're going to see it. Let's unpack four of these impacts. One, first impact. It's a settled encouragement through your faith. A settled encouragement through your faith. Verse 7. For this reason, brethren, because you have these passions of gospel faith, love, and friendship, you're like family, you're brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged. The New American Standard says comforted. It is the normal word for encouragement. But notice that encouragement did not come from as everything leveled out and we got rid of all these afflictions and we started thinking about you again. We thought, okay, things are good. We're encouraged. Situation's all ironed out. No, he says in the midst of our distress and our affliction, we are encouraged because of you. In all our distress, in all of our affliction. And that likely refers to the affliction and distress that Paul himself is going through. I mean, he's being chased out of cities, citywide riots, all of that. That's a lot of affliction, a lot of distress. I mean, everywhere he goes, he sets off an entire city. That would get on, that'd bother your conscience after a while. He's in Athens now. Nobody really wants to believe. Very few people are believing. A church is not being started in Athens. Just a couple of believers starts to make you wonder. Oh, but he's encouraged. Distress is a word that could refer to difficult pressure, both internal and external. It's it's the idea. It feels like the pressure of ministry. 
in all the pressure. Affliction is more like a harsh attack, the attack that comes. To the Corinthian church, he expressed what these kinds of pressures and afflictions might have looked like. In 2 Corinthians 11, he talked about some apostles, some who were false apostles, who were telling the church, oh, we're the real servants of Christ because we have such a good life. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I'm more a servant of Christ. Well, okay, well, what's your criteria for being a really good servant of Christ? Pressure, affliction. Really? What does that look like? Well, Second Corinthians eleven twenty three. Far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews thirty nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things, (laughs) external things. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. I think he'd be in the 39%. Don't you think? Oh, I think he'd be higher than that. Why be in the ministry? He says, oh, that's, that's the normal of my life. But I'm comforted about you. I'm comforted. I'm encouraged because of your faith. Your faith that causes you to love others and long for our ministry to be with you in friendship. I'm encouraged. I can go through all of that and I have a settled encouragement, comfort because of your faith. It's just settled. What an incredible thought. Their confidence in Jesus fueled Paul and his comfort in the most trying moments of discouragement. He's saying it kept me going. It buoyed me. Kept me hopeful. I kept wanting to serve. I wanted to get back to you. What a a blast of needed cool air in all of the desert of affliction that he was going through to hear this report. He can breathe. Yes. Do you ever think that your faith, your confidence in the Lord, in your issues in life, have you ever thought about what effect that has on other people, let alone your leaders? You ever thought about that? Do you ever express that? Some of you do. Many of you do. I get notes from you. I get conversations from you and with you regularly of of your faith in the Lord and how how you're growing in the things of Christ and we have conversations and we hear that share them we have seven elders in our church share them we have other brothers who are teaching the Bible to you on a regular basis 
There are many of you who are meeting with one another for discipleship and you're pouring into each other's lives. Share. Share how you're growing in the Lord. Share it. Do your elders only hear from you when you're struggling? Do they also hear from you? You say, are you asking for, you know, something this week? You kind of want the bun. It would really be encouraging to my heart if every one of our elders this week, if you didn't write me at all, but you wrote the other six guys, you wrote them and said, here's how the Lord is growing me because of your ministry. That, that would be beautiful. That is a breath of fresh air. That says, this is why I get up again in the morning. This is why I'm gonna open that Bible. I'm gonna study. I'm gonna put in those, those hours to teach and, and preach and minister again. I'm encouraged because there's spiritual fruit that's coming from this. Think about what kind of settled encouragement your faith in Jesus could create for those who are pouring into your life. There's another impact in verse 8, and I call it a satisfied life through your stability. A satisfied life through your stability. Verse 8. This is a powerful verse. For now... We really live if you stand firm in the Lord. I think that verse has the tendency to bring me to tears more than any other verse in the Bible at this stage of my life and ministry than any, anything else. In fact, after I'm now in my 34th year of pastoral ministry. I know I only look 18, but uh, really. (laughs) I think I understand this verse better today than I have ever understood it. Now, if you look carefully at the New American Standard and how it renders this verse, it adds the word really, but it's in italics, meaning it's not in the original. He says, we live if you stand. Now, the New American Standard is trying to reflect to you the present tense form of the verb. We're in this constant state of life. We really live. And they're also trying to reflect kind of the metaphorical idea here. He's not saying, I'm physically alive because you stand firm in the Lord. So it is, it is a metaphor for life and livelihood and vibrancy of life and ministry it is that but think about think about what it was like if they would not stand firm in the lord if he lives vibrantly what's it like if he hears that they're walking away it's like what death it's death to his soul it feels deadly And he says that. He he wondered if his whole labor, his whole life's efforts were in vain, empty. That would have made him feel lifeless, useless, completely without any consequence at all in anyone's life. I'd feel dead. In fact, he might have wanted to die. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, we had the sentence of death on our life. We thought we would die and we wanted to die. 
And here he says, we live if you stand firm in the Lord. That's what he cares about. He wants them to stand firm. He doesn't want them to be movable by their circumstances. And he wanted that for all the churches. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. He said to the Galatian churches, Galatians 5, 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Philippians 1, 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Philippians 4.1, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He'll say it in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, so brethren, stand firm hold to the traditions that's what he wants more than anything else stand firm don't be moved as one commentator put it for Paul whether or not they stand firm in the Lord is a matter of life and death his putting it so strongly is another indication of friendship since friends in the Greco-Roman world lived and died together as it were Otherwise, had the Thessalonians' faith failed in some way, Paul's distress and persecution would function like death to him. And as always, it is not by their loyalty to Paul that concerns him, but their steadfast loyalty to Christ. That's life to him. When he hears that people are walking with the Lord, they're overcoming sin, they're standing firm in the gospel, it is life-giving to him. They're pressing on. Climbing out of the pit. They're not giving any ground to the enemy. They're not quitting. They're fighting. They're overcoming. They're enjoying God in the midst of all the most unenjoyable circumstances. That's life-giving. Shepherds live a satisfied life when you are stable. Stable. Standing firm in your faith. And stable doesn't mean that you're not struggling. Stable means you're not giving in we're all going to struggle but don't quit your shepherds feel fully alive when they hear that I'm just telling you that overjoys every elder of this church to hear people standing firm in the Lord it's life giving there's a third impact of these passions found in verse 9 I refer to it as an unending gratitude through your perseverance. An unending gratitude through your perseverance. Verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? I want you to focus in on that last phrase in verse 9. All the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account. This is Paul's life. It's another way to describe verse 8. We really live. We have this constant joy. This constant joy that we're expressing with joy to God all the time. We have this constant joy about you. And, And Paul is saying we have all this joy even though... No city will have us. We start riots everywhere we go. 
There's not many people being converted in Athens right now. It doesn't feel very effective at the moment. There's all the, the whole world seems like they're against us. And I'm so overjoyed by it. All the time. I keep telling the Lord how, how enjoyable this is. You're like, what a nutcase. No, they're firm. They're standing firm in all of this. And he keeps finding his heart erupting in joy. And he says he knows that that's the result of God's work because he can't find enough ways to repay God for all of that joy. Where did that joy come from? That's God's work. It's God's work in God's people. It's God's work. It makes me so joyful. And so literally when he says here, for what things can we render to God? Render is the word payback. It's like God just keeps heaping all of this work of steadfastness on the people and endurance and perseverance on the people. And that's what Paul cares about most. And it keeps happening and it makes Paul so joyful. He just can't find a way to pay God back with enough gratitude. I'm just thankful all the time. It's unending gratitude for all this joy I have for what he's doing with you. How many of that 38% of pastors, if they felt that way, do you think would say, yeah, I think I'd rather have a different job? And where did Paul get that joy? From their steadfastness, their perseverance. They keep moving on. They won't quit. He says, that's that's God. It just makes me so happy. I, I can't pay him back. There's no way to pay him back for it all. What a gracious work. You're pressing on. You're loving the Lord with all your being. You're making the hard choices of denying yourself in order to prize Christ causes constant joy in the shepherds that God has placed in your life. Constant joy to the point where they they look at that and they see God's work and they say, I just can't be grateful enough for what God's doing. That's pretty impactful, isn't it? You have that kind of passion as a church has that kind of impact on a shepherd. Verse 10 is the fourth impact. I refer to it as an insatiable longing through your need. An insatiable longing through your need. Verse 10. This is such an encouraging verse. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. What an encouragement. Their faith, their love, their friendship causes Paul to pray for them all the time. He hears about their passions for the shepherds. Full of faith, full of gospel love, full of gospel friendship, and it makes him pray all the more And what is he praying for? To see them. I want to be with them. Now I want you to notice he's praying that they may have their faith completed with something lacking. So I thought they were full of faith and love and they were perfect. No, they weren't perfect. 
No flock is perfect. Paul is not overjoyed with the perfection of that church. He's not like, he's not saying, hey, our church is so great, we have no problems. We have no issues. No, I just know there's faith, you won't quit. There's such love, you keep persevering in love with each other. You have great longing friendship towards us and with one another. There's more work to be done, right? There's more work to be done until Jesus returns. I want to come I want to give more of that ministry. You want me to come and get that ministry? I want to do that. So I'm praying. And he says praying, and he doesn't mean praying there like, I'm having my devotional time, and in my devotional time, it's on my list of prayer requests. And I'm asking God to do that. That's not what he means here, because this is not the general word for prayer. This is a word that means he is begging God. He is pleading with God. There's an urgency. And in case you miss how urgent that is, he adds another word, and it is the word most earnestly. That is a compound word. Comes from one term, perisuo, exceedingly or abundantly. And he heaps on top of that word another term at the beginning to intensify it to say this is beyond all measure every excess is in in view here I'm excessively begging God to let me come back and see you I don't think you can express eagerness any greater than that I'm begging God with the highest degree of eagerness I could ever feel or describe to see you and to keep serving you until the Lord returns. So much, that's how much their faith, their love, their friendship has impacted his heart. That's pretty profound, isn't it? Do you see the reciprocal nature of that? This ministry between the shepherd and the flock? Paul's ministry of seeking their upbuilding, their faith, their growth causes them to rejoice in greater stability of faith and seeing that stability of faith invigorates Paul even more to want to pour more of himself into them. Just fuels the process over and over. It's this circular, reciprocal nature of ministry. To have pastors and shepherds and elders passionate about eternal things for you leads to the flocks maintaining passions for eternal things. And that invigorates the pastors to keep serving in those eternal things. I think that's one of the reasons why the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with, do you know the word? Joy. Let them do this with joy and not with grief because that would be unprofitable for you. Do you understand the satanic plot behind making pastors unhappy with ministry? Do you understand that? If their joy is tied to your growth, what happens when they're discouraged? And they get out. What do they not do then? Pour in to you that makes you grow even more. That's a satanic plot. Guess what you should want from a church? 
and from the shepherds. Eternal things. Eternal faith-centered things. And as they pour that into you and you grow in that and you develop in that, it just fuels them with such joy and they in turn minister more to you. To impact that is a plot to keep the church weak. Oh, it could be big, but it would be weak. I hope that that's what you want. And I understand the pressures of ministry. I I really do. I understand that, and I understand it more and more every day. I understand, because I talk to a lot of pastors, too, who are discouraged, and I, I know what they face in regard to their family, their family's health and satisfaction. I know the personal challenges of time and exhaustion and concerns with adequate compensation and health care and how all that can weigh on a man's mind. Uh, in the 34 years that I've served, I've, I've served as a single person in bivocational ministry, living in a travel trailer, to even to where we are today with our family in a wonderful church like this. But I also understand the deeper joys of engaging the church over eternal things in personal, intimate, life-giving fellowship with a flock of God's people. In fact, I'm just overjoyed that every church I have ever been able to serve, I've had that kind of affection for that church. And I know the satanic ploys to hinder it all. So how do you maintain it? How do you keep it? When it's sweet, how do you keep it sweet? You have to pray for that. You have to pray for that, which is exactly what Paul does in the next verse, which we look at next week, is his prayer to keep this going. You have to pray for it, and then you have to act on those prayers. So that's what we need to beg God for, and we need to plead that he would do that work. And um, even if you fired me today, and you could, I guess, tonight at the members' meeting. <clears throat> we could get the ball rolling. We've got a constitution and bylaws. Brett Harris will remind us. But you could and get rid of the elders. But even if you did, I'd, I'd probably just say, yep, I loved every day of it. Even the hard ones that I didn't like, I still love the church, still love this flock. Can't imagine myself being anywhere else. And I thank God for that, for your growth, the way you're growing standing and believing. Let's pray together. Father, as we 